Our scripture lesson this morning comes to us from the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 8, verses 1 through 22. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah. And they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, you're old and your sons, they don't follow your ways. Now appoint to us a king that will lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, Listen to all the people. Listen to what they are saying. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king, as they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so that they are doing to you what they did to me. So now listen to them, but warn them solemnly, and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses. And they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and he'll give it to his officials and his attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys, he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king, from this king that you have chosen. But the Lord will not answer you on that day. But the people, they refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, We want a king. We want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations, with a king to lead us and to go out before us and to fight our battles. When Samuel heard all the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. And the Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. And together we say, thanks be to God. We're on the second week of our series about icons. Throughout the next four weeks, we're going to look at different images or analogies for God and ask, why? Stop. Pause. Here we go. So we're on the second week of our icon series. Throughout the next four weeks, we're going to look at different images and analogies for God and ask, what is idolatrous about these images and what is iconic about them? Remember, idols are the things that separate us from God, and icons are the things that draw us deeper into relationship with God. Idols capture icons. They captivate us. This morning, we're going to explore the image of God as a king. What does it mean for God to be a king? What exactly that means in the context of the Bible 
and what it means in the context of our own lives. Because we have lots of different imaginations about what a king is, and what a king is supposed to do, and who a king is supposed to be. So will you join me in prayer this morning as we prepare to hear the word that God has for us? Let us pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. We thank you for your word. May it always be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. Have you ever noticed that we have a love-hate relationship with monarchies? We love to keep up what's going on with the royal family in England, right? We love to talk about King Leonidas and the Brave 300. We love King Elvis, and we love the Queen of Soul, Aretha Franklin. We love to eat at the Burger King and grab some blizzards from the Dairy Queen. We love royalty because of the glory and the prestige and the panache, right? But as Americans, we also royally push back on the notion that any king or queen should ever rule over us or deprive us of our freedoms. We believe in democracy and in this great republic. But no matter how we feel about kings, and no matter how we feel about kingdoms, one thing we can say is that even though almost none of us, most anybody listening, has ever been subject to royal rule, we're all very familiar with the concept of monarchy. And that's in part because monarchies are a really old form of governance, much older than our democratic republic. But also, though, I believe we are familiar with the notion of royalty because monarchies, they're just so fascinating, right? I mean, we love the scintillating details surrounding internal dynamics of royal families. For example, Elizabeth the Great wasn't even Russian, and she usurped her husband early in their marriage to become the sole leader of Russia. And does anybody remember the rhyme about King Henry that helped you get extra credit on your European history test? Divorced, beheaded, died. Divorced, beheaded, survived. And let's not even get into what's going on with Meghan and Harry right now, right? I'm, I'm sure the queen is just livid over this plan for autonomy and this line of luxury apparel items. As much as we like to tout the superiority of freedom and independence, we actually have a pretty strong infatuation with royalty, right? But it goes without saying that we are not the first to have favorable opinions towards monarchical rule. In fact, our text today is an example of a group of people moving from a theocratic form of government that is executed through a governing group of people and opting instead for a singular monarchy. The ancient Israelites, they were meant to trust in God as their singular leader. God was their president, their governor, their king. But the thing was, everyone around them had an earthly king. The Moabites, the Amorites, the Assyrians, the Persians, all the neighboring people had kings. Not a group of judges that executed the will of an intangible God. So the people told the prophet Samuel, We know you've been leading us for a while in interpreting the will of God for us. But we don't really trust anyone to do very well what you do when you're gone. Your kids, they're not really up to snuff. 
and all of our neighboring states, they have kings and they're conquering lands at breakneck speed. And so if we don't want to get our necks broken too, we need a king. Samuel, we want you to appoint us a king. And Samuel, he was not about this life. He knew this was a bad idea. He went to God and said, can you believe these people? And God said to Samuel, well, go tell them how terrible it would be if they have a king, Samuel. So Samuel said, that's a great idea. I'll tell them. I'll tell them just how bad it'll be when, they, when, they won't want, when they're going to decide that they want another king. Then later they're going to realize they don't want any king besides you, God. So he said, hey, guys, check this out. You, you don't want a king. If you have a human king, he will take your sons and he will make them serve with his chariots and horses and they'll have to run in front of his chariots and he'll assign some of your kids to be commanders of thousands and some to be commanders of 50, but they're all going to go to war. And for other people, though, he's going to make you plow his grounds and reap his harvest. He'll take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He'll take the best of your fields. He'll take your best wine. He'll take your best olives and he'll give them to his friends. He's going to take your, your best cattle. He's going to take your donkeys. And he's going to take a tenth of everything you have. And he'll probably end up making you his slaves too. Doesn't that sound terrible? I mean, you don't want that, do you? You don't actually want a king. And the people were like, actually, we're good. Samuel, you're crazy. There's no way that's going to happen. We want a king. Appoint for us a king. And Samuel told God, God, they just won't listen. They still want a king. They still do not trust you. So God said, well, give them what they wish. And without going into too much detail, let's just say this whole kingship thing, it did not end up well. It didn't go super hot for the Israelites. Saul was a ruthless king. David was a man after God's own heart, but his indiscretions eventually led to the country being divided into two. Solomon was wise, but not even his wisdom could hold Israel together. And his descendants were constantly fighting over who was the rightful king. And yet, though there were only three kings during the time Israel was one nation, and a lot of kings that ruled over the divided, nation of king, the divided kingdom of Israel, even though Samuel was right and the kings weren't the greatest thing, when the people were in exile, when they were cast out of their land, what they wanted more than anything else, the only thing they thought would restore their people was another king. They wanted God to send another human, another king that would save their nation, that would raise them back up to power. This biblical desire for kingship has also deeply impacted our Christian history. I mean, God as a monarch is one of the most dominant themes of our theology and our hymnody. I mean, you can turn in your hymnal and there you'll find, Lead on, O King Eternal, all creatures of our God and King. Rejoice, the Lord is King, and come thou almighty King. And our contemporary worship songs, they do the same thing, right? King of my heart, only King forever. Sing to the king. And how about king of heaven? I mean, those are all just songs where king is somewhere in the title. There are countless others where God or Jesus is identified as a king within the lyrics of the song. We, like the Israelites, we like to, to sing and talk a lot about a king. 
like the Israelites, we are drawn to the glory and the power and the majesty of kings. But unlike the Israelites, we don't want an earthly king. We don't want just a normal Joe Blow to rise up, to come into power and to take over the world. We believe that God is our king and that God as the person Jesus came and established his kingdom here on earth. The king of glory has already come and we are to bow down to him. And one day he will return and his kingdom will be fully exemplified on earth as it is in heaven, right? That's what we just prayed earlier today. But I do think sometimes there's something a little nefarious about our image of God as king, something that has come up over the past few centuries. I think the image of king that the New Testament paints has become intertwined with various cultural understandings of what a king is. The conjoining of these two has made an idolatrous amalgamation. Michael made fun of me whenever I said idolatrous amalgamation, because sometimes I say he uses too big of words for me, and then he's like, you can never make fun of me again for using big words if you use the term idolatrous amalgamation, which just means we have put together this weird God, king, earthly king joining of ideas that doesn't always really jive. I think the the best place we have to look to understand what kind of king God is, is to look at the person of King Jesus, right? Jesus, who is God made flesh, who is the king of glory, and who made the kingdom of heaven known on earth. But let's just do a quick comparison of earth, of earthly kings, and the type of king that Jesus is. I mean, what comes to mind when you think of the word king. When we think of the word king, we often think of the, you know, of power or of armies or land. We think of strategic family unions through weddings, a propensity to wield authority for their own benefit. Monarchical rulers, you know, they all have kind of a similar MO, don't they? And many of them have those same dangers that Samuel was warning the Israelites about. But setting the dangers aside, many of the qualities we think are impressive about earthly kings are the same type of qualities we expect God to embody as a king, right? I mean, God is a great leader who sits on a throne, who commands armies of angels to fight battles on our behalf, right? That's what we find in the scripture, that he's got the whole world in his hands like we sing about. All the land is his. No one is more powerful than our God, the king. And we get to be a part of this kingdom because we're part of a royal wedding. We are the bride of Christ. So Christ is our king, and our king protects us. Our king provides for us. And in most instances, all of this is completely true, right? We know that God is our sovereign king, whose rule and reign is supreme. He is the beginning and the end, and there's none greater than our God. However, there's a key difference between the kings of this earth and the one true king. Whereas the kings of this earth want power and honor and glory all for themselves so that everyone will know how wonderful and worthy of praise they are. Through the person of Jesus, God emptied himself and gave away his life on the cross, thereby emptying his power in order to declare everybody else to be worthy in order to make us co-heirs in the kingdom 
with his son. See, that is one of the biggest differences between kings of this world and the king of this entire world. That this king, our king, God the king, does not hoard power and glory for God's self, but offers it freely to all people on this earth. And I think that's the pivotal piece in all of this, that this emptying activity separates God the king from these earthly kings. This completely reorients the, how power works and where we should think about where power should reside. And I think this impacts so many other pieces of who God is as a king. Because yes, God provides, God protects, God saves, and God is in charge always. But unlike earthly kings, God does not order us by force. God does not cast us into the dungeon every time we do wrong. In fact, unlike kings of this earth, God does not give us demands we have to follow. He offers us invitations into a holy life, fulfilled through sanctification. But there is one major point of tension within all, within all of us with this type of kingship that God inhabits. And it's actually really ironic when you think about it a bit. We don't want earthly kings telling us what to do. We don't want anybody telling us what to do, right? We don't, we don't, you know, we don't one or two, or we don't want to spend any of our, we don't want them to tell us how to spend any of our money or what choices we have to make. But throughout history, I mean, that's what kings have done, right? They extol edicts and commands and they, they put taxes and they dictate how people have to live their lives. But this is exactly what we want from God, right? We want God to tell us what to do. We want God to tell us what to do and when to do it. We want God to fix our problems and not make us jump through hoops along the way. And yet God, unlike the earthly king, invites us to make choices for ourselves, offering direction and encouragement, but never forces us to be Christ followers, never forces the grace on anybody they have to accept. We don't want earthly kings or leaders to tell us what to do, and then that's exactly what they do. And we want our heavenly king to tell us what we have to do, and that's almost never what God does. This desire for God to be the king, the person who tells us what to do and to fix our problems, and the kind of king that you know, swoops in and saves the day, this is not a new concept. This desire for God to be the being who can tell us what to do in each step and fix our problems has been around for a long time. For centuries, many Christians have understood God as deus ex machina, Deus ex machina is the problem-solving God. Like a machine, God can solve an issue upon command. If you have a problem, pray to God and God will solve your problem. And I can't tell you how often I wish this is the very way things would work. I even find myself sometimes trying to convince myself that this is how things work. This is definitely who God is. God, Christ is the king who just fixes everything. You know, when things get chaotic or difficult, I wish God would just, you know, step in. And, and give us the easiest prescription of how to live our best lives now. If God would just do the hard things for us, then we could go about our business of trying to live the most happy versions of life. If we just plant the seed in the ground, then God's going to take care of everything. But here's the problem with all this. The problem with God as deus ex machina, the perfect prescriber that fixes all things, is that while we were looking for a king on a throne with a sword in his hand who would fix everything for us so that we never had to suffer, the Bible offers us King Jesus, 
the king who chose to suffer and who calls his followers to do the same. The person we believe to be king, Jesus, he gave us an example of suffering in life and dying on a cross. I mean, we want deus ex machina, but we're given passio passiva, the one who suffers willingly, the one who goes through the passion on his own. And that, my friends, is the tension between idol and icon here. Either way, God is a king. But God as king can be our idol or it can be our icon. It can capture us or it can captivate us. If the image of God as a king is the one that will swoop in and save the day no matter what, a God king that fights all of our battles for us so that we don't have to do anything, if God is more like a genie for you, then the idea of king might actually be an idol. It might be something that's limiting you from really fully seeing who God as a king actually is. But if God for you is a king who is worthy of all honor and glory, who is sovereign and the ruler of all, but chooses to pour that power out for the salvation of the world, then that is an image that can captivate you. That is a king that can be an icon who draws you into a fuller picture of the divine. So let us be a people that celebrate our king, our savior, Christ Jesus, who came to suffer and who calls us into a life of servanthood. May we be people that make known this kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. May we be a people who follow the example of Christ and bring about a world where peace prospers and love abides. And may we usher in the rule and the reign of a kingdom that is wildly different from any this world has ever known. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.